0: And welcome to Not for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Anna.
1: I'm Georgia. And joining us on our episode today is Hannah. Hannah, welcome.
0: Hi, thank you for having me. Hannah, can you possibly tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be doing a PhD at Manchester?
2: Yeah, sure. So my name's Hannah. I'm currently a PhD student at the Humanitarian and Conflict Response Institute. And really, once I made it to Manchester My journey from there was really simple. I did my undergrad in history at the University of Manchester, which I really, really loved. Then I did my master's degree at HCRI, so also in Manchester. And now I'm doing my PhD there. So pretty straightforward. And could you tell us a little bit about your research? Of course. So at the kind of most basic level, my research is about humanitarianism in the former Soviet Union. And to do that, I'm looking at the case study of the Kazakh famine from 1930 to 1933. So I have been really interested in the history of Russia and the Soviet Union pretty much since my first semester of history undergrad. I did a course on medieval Russia because I already kind of knew what happened in the late 19th century and I knew a lot about the Russian Revolution because I'd covered that before so I was really interested in what happened kind of leading up to that and when you do history in Manchester you have this thing called history in practice where you're assigned a seminar tutor and you learn how to do history based on their area of expertise. And my academic advisor was Dr. Christy Ironside, who's a specialist on money in the Soviet Union. And the course she taught us was basically around Stalinism and what life was like in the Soviet Union under Stalin. And I found this so fascinating and i did most of my modules on russian history i wrote my long essay on russian history but then in third year i did my dissertation in third year on the journeys of child survivors of the holocaust so child dps essentially in post-war germany and i became really really fascinated with the history of humanitarianism and it's really thanks to peter gatterall who's now one of my supervisors who said well why don't you do the two together. So that's how I came to think about humanitarianism in the Soviet Union, which gets me a lot of weird looks, both from people doing Soviet history and humanitarian history, because they're a little bit like, well, that's not a thing. Um, And I'm like, well, It is a thing, and I think it's really important that we think about how humanitarianism developed differently in different parts of the world and that there are non-European alternatives to humanitarianism. And we see this in other places as well. I just happened to pick the USSR and then i had to decide on a case study which i did really only during my first year of the phd i thought i was going to focus on a completely different kind of region and chronology so i arrived at the kazakh famine as my case study because i think it gives me an opportunity to think about humanitarianism in the ussr as well as A number of different dynamics that I think deserve to be explored more within Soviet history. And so it allows us to think about different traditions, different nationalities, different ethnicities. It allows us to think about how people in different parts of the Soviet Union experienced this kind of new world that the government tried to create And in the case of Kazakhstan, unfortunately, they largely experienced it through hardship and through hunger. So how was humanitarianism in Soviet Union different from
0: kind of Western European traditions?
2: Yeah, that's really the big question that my PhD is asking slash the big question that I'm trying to consider is what did humanitarianism in the USSR look like? And I'm using the Soviet Red Cross as my point of access, partially because it's practical. I know that there's a really good basis of sources available on the Soviet Red Cross. I also think it'll allow me to explore really interesting dynamics within the Soviet Union. So you might not know, some of you might know, some of you might not know that in the Soviet Union, basically for most branches of government, for most organizations, you haven't kind of all union kind of head office and then you'll kind of have smaller offices in like different regions and different republics and it's the same for the red cross so you have a council of the all union soviet societies of the red cross which is made up of the soviet society of the different republics so you'll have a russian red cross society the georgian red cross society etc etc as well as the kazakh red cross society and one of the things i'm really interested in is how aid and relief at different levels of the Soviet Union interacts. So you have the government, you have the all-Union Soviet Red Cross, but then you have local Red Crosses, which might be the Kazakh Red Cross. It might also be the Red Crosses of the neighbouring republics, because during famine, a lot of people become displaced because they try and find better access to food. So a lot of people moved into Kyrgyzstan, for example. So while the Kyrgyz government is trying to deal with the influx of refugees, you might have the Kyrgyz Red Cross as well as the Kazakh Red Cross trying to help these people. The first thing about the Red Cross is that I think it'll be really interesting in terms of how it works in the Soviet Union itself. The second thing, of course, is that it has a connection to the International Red Cross. It's a recognized humanitarian organization. Of course, there are some problems with this and there have historically been some issues with the Soviet Red Cross and its kind of international relations. Again, I think that's a very interesting history. But so that's kind of where I start. And then what I really want to do as well, in addition to this, is think about what kind of, unofficial relief do we maybe have like what do local people do maybe based on their local traditions right because at the time in Kazakhstan you do have a very strong tradition of islam which itself has very strong traditions of charity and philanthropy that look quite different to europe and to european russia
1: uh, that actually leads quite nicely into the question that i was going to ask which is i apologize if i'm wrong about this but it was always my understanding that the red cross itself has a, a foundation in religion like it started out as a Christian humanitarian organization. So I was wondering how that manifests in Soviet Russia which is sort of a very secular, at least at surface level, a secular state.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you're completely right. The Red Cross movement, it really comes out of Protestant philanthropy because it's obviously founded, a lot of people like to really emphasise this, Bayon Dunant, who goes to Solférino, witnesses firsthand how horrible war can be. And from that, he decides that he wants to do something against this. And I mean, to this day, all the people working for the ICRC, so the International Committee of the Red cross in geneva are swiss citizens so it has a very strong geographic location and then initially the kind of vision was that all the different nations who signed up to the geneva convention and founded their own red crosses would follow this kind of christian tradition and that's the case originally actually with russia as well to an extent so russia gets its red cross still in the imperial period when the orthodox church is still very strong and something that i'm looking into at the moment is actually the the origins of the russian red cross itself And I think it's fair to say that it actually happens slightly earlier than in Europe because we have a tradition of women doing nursing, both during peacetime, so very devout Christian women dedicating their lives to helping the poor and nursing the poor. So out of that, there are wealthy women, again, um, so this is predominantly female-led charity at the beginning. We have wealthy women who found communities of nurses and these are some of the first communities of women providing medical aid and they go into the crimean war already as established aid organizations before this really happens in europe and obviously before solferino but i think it's fair to say that some of these traditions that come from christianity whether that's orthodox or catholic or protestant are quite similar and even in the history of the Russian Red Cross, I think there's very much a Eurocentricity in the literature. And there's very much a focus on Russian Europe and there's less of a focus on remote or peripheral regions that are largely of Muslim background and would follow Islamic traditions of relief more likely than Christian. But then we see the establishment of independent republican society of red crosses as i said before that do operate independently to an extent so i think something that might be quite helpful for our listeners to understand is that while you have the international committee of the red cross in geneva different countries will have national societies that even though they belong to this larger red cross movement they operate autonomously and they can more or less do what they see fit they follow their own priorities etc etc so this really gets at a fundamental issue that i think has been neglected a little bit in the history of the soviet union that the ussr was huge and it had very diverse populations not just in the different republics but even in russia itself and i think it's really important to bear in mind that these are real people with very different experiences of what the soviet union is and how the change of government, the revolution, how the Soviet Union impacts their lives. It's
0: quite interesting, you know, how that idea of humanitarianism also explores the ideas of relationship between Soviet government and religiosity and local traditions. This might be a silly question, but what is the most surprising thing you came across so far in your research?
2: That's a really hard question. I can tell you about something really cool that I found recently. So a little bit of background first, because you may or may not know about this. I kind of mentioned the word peripheral just now. And there's this kind of idea that a lot of scholars now in Soviet history are trying to challenge, which is that certain parts of the Soviet Union have been considered to be peripheral in political or geographic or economic or cultural terms. So very early in the Soviet Union, but in the late imperial period, this is really pronounced as well. There's this idea that they're kind of backward. They need to be brought up to kind of the civilizational standard of Russia, right? Because Russian is like, the big brother Republic. And it kind of continues to be that throughout the Soviet period. And what I found really cool and really surprising is that when I was looking online for primary sources, I came across a poster from the 1920s, when of course you have famine across large parts of Russia and it's asking for the help of the people in the Muslim Republic. So in these kind of peripheral Central Asia Republics, it's asking them to help the people in Russia. And I thought that was really, really fascinating. And I think that's something I wanna dig into a lot more because in the way that I was thinking about my project, largely I was thinking about aid coming from Russia to these areas in Central Asia, to Kazakhstan, which was suffering from famine and kind of Southern parts of Russia as well. And I've not really, in thinking about these trans Republican relationships, I've not really thought about the fact that aid could possibly also go two ways despite the fact that I think it's very important to conceptualise the relationship between the Soviet government and local governments in Central Asia as not being one way. question we like to ask our guests is, what's the biggest
1: misconception about your work? When you talk to a sort of non-expert or when you try and describe what you do, what's the biggest misconception you come up
2: against? I mean, I thought you were going to ask me about what the biggest misconception about Russia is. And I was going to say, I was going to say that Russian people don't smile because I saw Anna smiling at me when you asked that question. I think it's very much this idea that we think of things like humanitarianism and then modernity is quite a big topic in my work and development. And we think of those as very much European things. So it's almost like there's a European hegemony on modernity, on development, on humanitarianism. And I think what I'm trying to do in my work is show that that is not the case. And a lot of people find this quite difficult, including Soviet historians. And I think it's really important that we think about those really big questions in a local way. So I think rather than expecting modernity to look the same in the Soviet Union as it did in Western Europe, and then perhaps coming to the conclusion, which many people have done, that the Soviet Union and that Russia experienced an incomplete modernity, I think it's really important to engage with them on their own terms and to accept that it might look different. But I also think there are a lot of parallels that can give us some really interesting insights into the 20th century more generally
1: yeah it's sort of about asking the right question isn't it not sort of why didn't such and such a culture become modern so much as what's wrong with our definition of modernity that it doesn't recognize these sort of alternative forms and alternative approaches to becoming modern
2: yeah and i think it's the same with humanitarianism, and especially the Red Cross, as you said, most people think of the Red Cross as a European or even a Swiss organisation. And I think it's really exciting that there's more and more scholarship and also more and more teaching, which I'm really happy about, that tries to introduce this idea that it didn't just happen in Europe. So I'm looking at Russia, which is a little bit of a new one. And I do acknowledge that it is problematic because you have a very specific type of government in the Soviet Union, which influences how the Red Cross works in that nation. But I don't think we can just discount it without trying to understand how exactly the Red Cross in the Soviet Union operated, how relief was conceptualized, what the relationship between the Red Cross and the state really looks like. But there's also really interesting literature on the Red Cross in Japan. The Japanese Red Cross, a lot of people probably don't know this. The Japanese Red Cross was one of the most efficient and one of the biggest and one of the strongest national Red Cross societies in the 20th century. They were very active during the Russo-Japanese War. Yeah, they were.
0: When you look at the cuttings of the war that were kind of circulated, there are specific ones which propagate the activities of the Japanese Red Cross, which were sort of aimed outwards from Japan, talking about humanitarianism in Japan, kind of trying to set a different idea about Japan into the world. It's really, really cool. There is some really interesting visual history to Japanese Red Cross.
2: Definitely. I I love that you're nerding out about this as much as I am. I think we see then in the kind of wider discourse of the international Red Cross movement, it's really a wake-up call. And I think especially for the Russians, it's really a wake-up call because compared to the Japanese Red Cross's medical aid, the Russians fall way short, even though they are one of the biggest Red Cross societies at the time. And obviously... If you're familiar with Russian history, you know what happens after the Russo-Japanese War. So the Red Cross in Russia, it comes in from my reading so far of the Imperial period at very crucial moments in Russian history. I really like your idea of kind of going local
0: because our understanding about USSR tends to be very sort of centralized, very state dispersed, you know, anything, any sort of social support is going to come from the state, is going to come through your local party committee and that's kind of how we understand it and I think it's so important to look at the local level and how the communities function, how the communities locally respond to some of the challenges that they have to
2: face. Absolutely. And I think that's probably the other major misconception. Actually, there's two more that I want to mention. The first is that the USSR is often equated to Russia, which obviously, like I said, that's not all it is. The USSR is huge. And again, because the USSR is huge, it's really hard to govern. And it's impossible for this kind of, what we think of as a very centralized state, it's impossible for them to maintain a strong grip on the entire area of its territory. So there is actually a lot more autonomy regionally than you would think. And I went to a really interesting talk the other week, well... I found it interesting. Most people will probably find it quite sad about executions and mass graves of victims of the Soviet regime. And the key speaker was talking about how Even if there is a directive that's given at the all union level that can be interpreted completely differently at kind of regional republic and even local levels. So again, what the party documents, the things that are created by the bureaucracy, by the state tell you might be very different to what people are actually experiencing on the ground, which is something I'm quite interested in, as I said. So that's gotten depressing, sir. So, a good point to say
0: that we usually ask our guests to tell us something funny or light-hearted about their research, something that brightened up their day and might brighten up the day of our listener.
2: I mean, something that always brightens up my day is food, and. What I will say, so for my PhD, but also before when I started learning Russian and was in the process of learning Russian, I spent quite some time in Russia. And Russian food, I think, is absolutely incredible. So if you'd like, we can talk about Russian food. That would make our listeners happy. I know someone who'd like to talk about Russian food.
0: I mean, I I have a confession to make. And I feel like that might get my passport taken away from me. But I don't like beetroot.
2: I was going to say, if you tell me you don't like Bosch, I'm going to be so upset. (laughs) I mean, I eat it. I eat it like while I'm
0: at home. But also the thing is that my mum doesn't take to make it because my dad doesn't really like it. So, so like I usually eat it with my grandma and I would eat it. What I do love is called borscht that comes from lithuania that they use kefir to make and that i absolutely love and that does have beetroot but in the amounts
2: that i'm ready to deal with but yeah i'm not a big beetroot fan i cannot understand for the record shocked faces from the guests today i love it it's my favorite it's one of my favorite things to eat it's one of my favorite things to cook i think it's beautiful and I think it's so interesting. We're coming back to this idea of localization. It's so interesting how there's so many regional variations. Like I have a Ukrainian friend who was like, you need to put beans in your borsh. And I was like, no, why? She's like, because that's what we do in Ukraine. And I'm like, oh, I love beans. I might try that.
0: That is like a major question. Because, you know, we love to try and divide up our history with Ukrainians nowadays. And one particular bit is where borsh comes from and then... Polish people come in and they start debating with us that it's actually a Polish dish and it's it's a, comp- it's a complicated thing because the vast majority of food historians writing about the subject can't properly place a borscht because broadly it's any soup with beetroot, right? And it's just borscht politics are very <laughs> messy.
2: I mean, I think it's a great metaphor for the history of the Soviet Union more widely. It's very complicated. It's very interwoven. There's regional variations that as outside observers and as westerners we don't necessarily understand or know about and i think it is fascinating and delicious and it's red like blood so it's it's got that going for it i have
1: only learned to like beetroot in fairly recent years and i have still never had boshed
2: so i will uh well that's easily fixed yeah that's true i would be happy to make you some bosh (laughs) Send it to me from Switzerland. Yeah. Well, when I'm back in the UK, well, we can have a little Bosch party.
1: Consider that a date.
2: Yeah. What else? I have a great story, if you want to hear it, about snow in Russia. Uh, Yes. (laughs) So I was in Russia for part of my first year. I was working remotely from Moscow. And during that time, I was teaching online because obviously no one was in the university physically and Russia had a very cold and very snowy winter so the snow came really early so I was sat at my desk teaching in about November way before the UK got any snow and suddenly there's a really loud bang at my window and it turns out that our security guards so we had a little where I live we had like a little hut um, with security guards had thrown a snowball at my window so Because I was trying to listen to a student that I was teaching, I start making like really weird faces and like waving my arms around for them to stop like trying to indicate that I'm teaching and kind of doing like a silent sign. my students got so confused. And then I had to fess up to the fact that um, (laughs) I was being distracted by people throwing snowballs at my window. So yeah.
1: We've had sort of a weird sprinkling of snow today, but we are just not getting proper snow at the moment.
2: Any snow that Manchester
0: gets is immediately melted, and then you hear reports you hear reports of parts of Manchester flooding, whereas you know back at home at the moment they've got like a lot of snow and it looks really lovely and I'm so incredibly jealous.
2: Do you have snow in Switzerland at the moment? We do. And so I live kind of high up sort of mountainy, kind of like a mountainy region. So we've had quite a lot of snow. And yeah, it's been pretty good. I get to like look at people skiing from my window, which is quite nice. Um, Makes me feel a bit sad, especially because, you know, I'm not researching the most cheerful of topics. But yeah, it's pretty in a different way, I think, because we have a lot of nature and mountains here. Whereas the snow in moscow i think it's gorgeous it makes everything sparkle and then you have like frozen lakes and like people will go and ice skate on the lakes and yeah it's just like a little winter wonderland
1: so dreamy hannah i think all that remains to say is thank you so much for being our guest today it was really fascinating to learn more about your research and just good to speak to you in general so yeah thank you very much for your time
2: today thank you for having me i really enjoyed being here i always enjoy talking about russian history and or russian food Preferably both, which we managed to do, so that was great. Thank
1: you very much, Georgia, for co hosting. Hannah, thank you for hosting this week.
2: Hannah, thank you
1: for being on the show. And as always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What
0: happens in the podcast stays in the podcast.
1: Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFPPodcast or you can email us at NSFPPodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.